we're in Second Peter chapter 2. And I want to read to you. It's going to take some time to actually get to the verse. And you'll understand why afterwards. But uh, the verse that I want to, to really focus on is verse 17. It says, These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. With the reading of God's Word, let us now go to Him in prayer. Our wonderful and gracious Heavenly Father, the God of Israel, the true God of the Bible, Lord, we're very pleased to come before You this morning. Lord, I ask that uh, everyone here be given a heart of joy that we can come before You, Lord, and read Your Word and learn and began to know each day anew who you are and what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that this morning you would give us hearts to, to worship you truly in spirit and in truth. Lord, that you would receive this worship, that you would be glorified, that your Son be exalted. And Lord, whatever the enemy or the flesh may have that would come against us, Lord, and cause us not to be able to worship, Lord, we just ask that you would remove that. For the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of the exaltation of your son, Lord, please remove all sin and malice and deceit. Lord, please remove from our hearts that which is not proper and appropriate for those who claim to be yours. Lord, we ask for your favor. We ask for your wisdom this morning as we look over your word. Lord, and we trust because you are the true God that your word will speak to our spirits and that our hearts and minds may be renewed so that we may receive and see the glory, which is Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. There's several things that... uh in order to, to really understand the proper context of the particular verse that I, I want us to look at today, that we should understand the emphasis this morning is the Word of God, as it should be. And so when we look in Second Peter chapter 2, we see that the apostle begins to speak with verse 1 in chapter 2. But we must be aware of how these historical documents came to be. When we consider the text of Scripture, how they came to be uh, as we see them now with verses and chapters, though they didn't originally appear that way, we recognize that they were penned of men, but these were men who were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is, in fact, God. As we reference the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know that this word, according to the Greek text, it's the anastas, God-breathed, divinely inspired, given by God Himself. This is not what a man wrote on his own mind or of his own thoughts, but we know that this is given by God Himself. Where it is written in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's where we get that uh that Greek word there, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
it would do us well to remember that it was not until the 13th century that we see the first lasting and widely used model of textual division, such as the use of chapters and verses. It's not to say that they didn't exist in some form that people began to split the Bible up so they would know where to go when they read, but this is where we see uh, the model that we currently use and as it was adapted from this in the 13th century. So it's at that time when we really get the division. And so we understand that and it doesn't at all corrupt the text of Scripture. It, it, all, it actually backs up the fact that we believe that God has preserved His Word, that we know those things that are in the Scriptures, that we know that uh, what man has added, the chapter and verse numbers, in order that He may reference those things. But we know that which is uh, belongs to God, which is God-breathed as we see. And so understanding this, our attention should be focused that we realize that chapter 2 is in fact a continuation of chapter 1 as we read Second Peter. We, in our minds, we tend to think that it's somehow separate and we separate that, but it makes so much more sense if we consider, uh, consider it in its proper context coming after uh, that of chapter 1, probably written at the same very time within uh, the same very moment. And so we're reminded that this book is unlike any other book. This is a holy book. It's contained in its very own library that we call the Bible. But above all this, the word is and was a letter to the church, to the people of God. This letter, as we read chapter 2, follows the context as it's immediately succeeding the principle from verse 19 in chapter 1 that declares the supremacy of the prophetic word as it is called. It says, so we have the prophetic word, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This is what we see in this particular first verse. It's even more important for us to realize that this prophetic word as it's spoken of here, it is the word of God. It's not just the word of God that the, uh, this particular apostle would bring forth, but it's the entire council. It's everything that we see in the Old Testament scriptures, and I'll cover that a little more as we continue. But some would say that uh, he's speaking simply of the prophets, and that's not true. This is uh, important that we realize the prophetic word is not merely just the, the major or minor prophets, as we call them, but it's the entire Old Testament in its entirety. The whole thing. This is the prophetic word of God. Why? Because we know that God spoke to the prophets in times past. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us. They would have visions. They would have dreams. They would hear God speaking. They would give this to men so that they would learn of God. So we can't take it to mean only uh, those things which we consider major prophets or minor prophets, but the entirety of the Old Testament text. The overarching truth is that the prophetic word is this entire council because every word, every jot, and every tittle served as a prophecy to establish the truth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who at the proper time was to come, who was to be offered up as a sacrifice in the stead of man to be that propitiation that we know of. And then with a later statement of John to understand that this 
who this prophetic word is, what this prophetic word is. John and uh, John five thirty nine says in the scriptures, you search the scriptures for you think that in them you have eternal life, but they are they that testify of me. There it is, Jesus Christ directing the people who would read to the scriptures for no other reason than they point to him and he is representative of God because he is both man and God. Truly man, truly God. John 5.39 is an affirmation of what's being spoken here in verse 19 in 2 Peter chapter 1. The prophetic word more fully confirmed or yours may say more sure. All of these holy scriptures tell of Jesus Christ. If we read the scripture in any other way to see any other thing then we failed to understand the scriptures for their true intent and purpose. They're really useless apart from Christ. These scriptures tell of Jesus. They tell of his majesty. They tell of his glory. They tell certainly of his divinity. And they tell of his exclusiveness for salvation of mankind. Peter says that this word of God is to be regarded as more significant, more powerful, more authoritative, more full and thorough than either his own account or the account of the apostles alone as they experienced many things alongside Christ in his ministry. He says, this prophetic word made more sure. Made more sure than what? He's talking about that which is, uh, was in the previous verses from 17 to 18. For when he received honor and glory from uh, God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. But as soon as he said, we heard it, this is our testimony, we heard this, he goes and says, but this is a prophetic word made more sure. The entire counsel of God. Not to rest on one, what one man has seen or what one man has heard, but what the entirety of God and all of his people have said from this point, uh, from creation forward. All of what we consider close canon scripture. The inference that Peter is making is that the word of God should be viewed as the supreme authority over any other work, over any other testimony, over any other idea that a man would place concerning Christ. Now, when we talk about this, we realize this is a big issue in, in quote-unquote churches today. There seems to be a great struggle to place a greater significance over the experience, a greater emphasis over the feeling or on the feelings that some have, rather than to rightly rank Scripture as the only and final conclusive authority. So many churches raised up based on what one man feels, one man's vision, what one man supposedly heard from God. But the apostle here is telling us that we have a prophetic word made more sure. More, more sure than any experience. Anything that we've ever claimed to heard, claimed to have heard or have felt on our own. The modern professing church, sadly, appears to openly set Scripture aside in order to place, uh, give place to emotion as if it would overrule what God has already said. 
So we should look at these scriptures today, understanding that the word is our final and greatest authority. It's our only authority. Therefore, if we're not careful, we will fall in this same manner. That's what brings us to the text of chapter 2 this morning. That we would see these things and see where Peter is coming from as he writes about destructive doctrine. The emphasis is the Word of God, a strong warning for the church to be on the lookout for destructive doctrine. A glorious warning to the church. We think, really, it's bad. Oh, we better look out. Something bad's going to happen. But what we know is it will happen. But God has prepared us that we can read this text and be aware and see what comes with it. The destruction, the anguish, the problems that will come up. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 24, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For we know that the Word is the truth. For, sincere, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. There is that living and abiding word of God that is a seed that will bring forth fruit. The Bible says the Word doesn't return void. Why does the Word not, not return void? It's because the Word is Jesus Christ Himself. To say that the Word could go forth and not bring forth fruit is like saying that Jesus Christ is useless. Who would say that? Certainly none of us here. As we see in 1 Peter, verse 23, this truth, this Word says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. We see that this Word is one that is living. It's a Word that is abiding. And then, of course, as we work to John chapter 1, uh, probably the easiest, uh, most world-renowned uh, support for this that we know in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have that surety. There's what the apostle is speaking of. The word was God and still is God and will remain to be God forever and ever into eternity. Typically the use of the word word as we see it here would denote or imply some type of worldly wisdom. That's why the apostle uses it. He uses it because people think of words uh, and the word, word, as a worldly wisdom, as something of understanding, some type of fleshly reasoning by which we would come to grasp an idea or a principle. So he refers to it as the word, this understanding. But then he goes further because we know that he describes the understanding as not uh, literally something that you can't grasp, some intangible writing. But he also likens it and says that it is Christ. So there's that living word, that abiding word. The Apostle John's use of this word was in no uncertain terms to express this wisdom and this truth that even the unbeliever thought of, of words that they could convey truth. 
But in no uncertain terms, he expresses also the surety of the word of God, which brought into existence everything that was created by its very nature. John describes this word as the intent person, the being, the divine Jesus Christ. In essence, we see that the spoken word of God, because it did bring forth all that was created, cannot be separated from the person of God. Because that word is the very express image and the full embodiment of God himself. All of the attributes of God described, contained within this word. The triune God existing in three persons. Shown to all of creation through his word through his creation. Therefore, as the Apostle John bridges the earthly definition of word and the divine definition of the word word, whom is Jesus, we in fact do have a word which is now tangible, which is alive, and which is an abiding in God because Jesus Christ is God himself. He's abiding in the Father. Because this word is Jesus Christ, who is in eternal union and fellowship with God, just as he also is one with God the Father. One God, three persons. The Trinity is is somewhat veiled, but for the Christian, we see it throughout the text. And so next, we actually get to to chapter 2, the focus of our study this morning. Uh, As we begin to read, we see that there's these False prophets arising. It says in chapter one, uh, in chapter one of, of, excuse me, chapter two, verse one, it begins with, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. That's how he begins. Speaking of destructive doctrines. I believe that this very first verse begins to outline the dangers within the church. The sad news is that the church today is not truly only the church. There's some goats mixed in. There's some wolves mixed in. It's very interesting that the apostle would write these things so that the church would remain vigilant. Here we have a warning of how dangerous and detrimental doctrine and more importantly false doctrine is to our spiritual well-being. But first notice this, the first half of the verse declares, but false prophets also arose among the people. This is interesting Because the first half of the sentence describes that word which was given in the Old Testament. That this quote-unquote word, as we see, was given by God through the prophets. Remember Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. This word was given through God by the prophets. As men look to the prophets for wisdom and counsel from God, we see that those who were false rose up among them. It was necessary that they still search the scriptures and see if these things are true. Even in the Old Testament, you would want to search, you would want to know for sure if what you were being taught is true. 
And certainly we're dealing that with that in this time of, of a prophetic ministry where God speaks to the prophets. These men were looking to them. Now in the second half of the sentence, we have a similarity, yet with a bit of contrast. The second portion of the verse says, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So what we have here is a description, uh, pre-incarnate Christ, where the word of God is actively and deceptively altered and twisted in order to cause destruction by false prophets. Now, this word would have come from uh, these prophets, or in this case, false prophets, because uh, they knew that God would speak only through prophets. So they had to disguise themselves and proclaim to be a prophet, though they would lie and twist the word. Likewise, in this present age, we know that God no longer speaks through prophets. It says that, Hebrews chapter 1 again, verse 1, uh, as you begin those, those first three or four verses there. And it goes to describe that he used to speak through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through his son. That son who first, uh, the first verse here, as we look in Peter, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, in the second uh, epistle of Peter, the second letter, we see which is the living and abiding word, that Jesus Christ. That's how he speaks now. Spoke through the prophets in this time. Spoke through the word, his son, Jesus Christ, in the second time. So we have not only... Uh, a warning here, but what we also have is something for us to see and, and to observe that there is no prophet in this day. Why? Because he said, used to, there was a prophet and there would be false prophets arise among the people and deceive. And he says, likewise, now you'll be deceived by teachers. Why? Because there is no prophet. There are only teachers. There are only old elders, overseers. These are the men who are qualified. In this present time, God speaks through his word, declaring through his son, Jesus Christ, spoken through the preacher, the teacher, the elder, the overseer, the bishop, if you will. Those qualifications are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Therefore, during this particular age, there is no prophet because God says there is none. Period. You want to stay away from deceptive and destructive doctrine? Don't look to anyone who calls themselves an apostle or a prophet. That's the first key. Because false prophets arose in the previous time period. Now we have to look for false teachers. So we know if they're calling themselves a prophet, that we can't even give them any credit. Might as well not even look to them. Don't consider that church. Now we must be aware of teachers and watch for teachers who would bring these deceptive doctrines. Therefore, we understand that these heresies deny the very Christ that they claim to believe in. False teachers. False prophets. They deny the power of Christ alone to purchase wicked sinners. They outright deny the redemption of the purchase of his blood. Therefore denying Christ as Lord, as master, as man, and as God. Then we have verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. He goes on to say. They'll follow sensuality. And the truth will be maligned. This means that these false teachers were just like the false prophets. They were not following God, but rather they were following foolish flesh. How often do we follow, follow foolish flesh? We're all guilty. We're all guilty. 
Praise the Lord if He would keep us from doing it on the regular basis. And He does because He preserves us. He causes us to stand upright. They would follow their flesh because the flesh appeals to the mere mortal man. In his unregenerate, in his unregenerate state, many will be swept away following the flesh. For one is not able to follow both flesh and spirit. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and the world. The text is very clear. The false teacher will make himself known because he will oppose the Word of God. To oppose the Word of God is to oppose the Son of God. So throughout the epistle, Peter goes on to see and to say, rather, that the false teacher will be justly punished according to their deeds. Yet at the same very time, God is still able and willing to rescue sinners. Those who belong to Christ. Those who come to Christ because the Father has given them unto Christ. He's able, He's willing. So we find that the depravity of these men is revealed in the instability of their souls. In the hardness of their hearts. And the pleasure that they take in wickedness towards God. So now we come to the focus of the text this morning. Verse 17. It says that these are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Now, there's a lot to be said in that particular passage. I want to focus on the first half of that verse. These are springs without water. I want to look more deeply into false teachers and the deception that they bring to their own hearts. The reason that we should look at this is because this letter was written not so that false teachers may know that they're false teachers. I mean, what do they care? They know. This can't be for false teachers. This can't be for false prophets. This is for you. This is for the brethren. This is for the church. This is written so that we may know So I want to take a look. The reason that we look at this is so that we may examine ourselves so that we would be able by the Word of God to see according to the Scriptures if we truly are teaching and proclaiming and professing Christ to see what kind of springs we are. It's it's great. There is that immediate context that says, hey, read this so that we know what a false teacher looks like, but at the same time it causes us to examine ourselves. Not many people will will preach that from this particular passage. We want to look at everyone else. That's the problem with the flesh. I do it. You guys have all done it. We want to look at that and say, we're looking out for someone else when we need to be looking out for ourselves. To see if we truly believe this word above all else. We need to see this so that 
we may stand watch before the church, before the bride of Christ in order to protect her and see that she is ever looking towards her bridegroom. And if we're doing that for the church, that this passage most certainly in its immediate context is telling us to do so that the church is aware, then at the same time, we're also being aware for our own selves to see that we're looking to Christ, to see that we're the proper type of spring, the spring that is in direct opposition to those of the false teachers. I think there's no better description in the first part of verse 17, these are springs without water. I think we should find it eternally beneficial to ask ourselves as we examine this particular text throughout the study this morning, what type of spring am I? Well, certainly during this time period when this was written, the modern irrigation of, of today was not prevalent. Water was very important. And I think most of us can say that we take it for granted. We just turn a, turn a knob and there it is, all that you want. All that you need. But water was a significant concern for most civilians of this time. Water is necessary. Water is essential. There is no doubt that Peter uses the term so eloquently as to raise thought in the minds of those to whom he would be sending this letter to. To the people of the time, a dry spring would be devastating. It would be disastrous. And at the very least, it would be deeply concerning and disappointing if you were to travel to a spring and there was nothing there but dry ground. A stagnant puddle. The idea is that one would come to the spring for nourishment, yet none would be found. That's what these springs without water are. Claiming to be a source of nutrition and life, yet having nothing to offer the sinner. Truly short and void of Christ. What a great spiritual insight into false teachers. The fact is that in their advertisement, there is an appeal to the flesh. It will draw men from all around. We have it. We have the way to Christ. We have the life. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to behave. This is what you need to give. This is where you need to place your focus. All in the name of Christ, but for the profit of the flesh. Because they're void of the Word. Or the Word doesn't take precedence over every other single thing. We see that today with those quote-unquote churches who have, for all intents and purposes, apostatized from true faith in Christ. Men with itching ears gather themselves uh, to exalt themselves rather than themselves falling at the foot of the cross before the mighty Jesus Christ, the only Savior, failing to exalt His name above all names. Failing to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Failing to love as He is loved and failing to walk in His righteousness. That's what all these apostatized churches have to offer you. A walk which will lead you straight to destruction. A walk of self-righteousness. We see it. Men love to assemble and with their fleshly appetites They're seeking to feed 
They're seeking for a spiritual uh, hunger that they have inside, but it will be left unfed. It's altogether impossible to follow the flesh and be fed by the Spirit. And the false teachers claim to have the nourishment. He says, I can feed you, but his water will not quench the thirst of man belonging to Christ. Matter of fact, the false teacher offers a liquid which won't even feed the flesh. That's why you keep coming. You keep wanting more and more. There's never enough. What he has to offer isn't enough. It's only able to further poison your soul. To usher a man towards death. While liberating his flesh to fulfill all unrighteousness. That's what Peter is saying look out for. That's the type of spring which we are to guard against. Saints, what we have here is a warning. Something and someone's to guard against. I think most commentators and preachers would take this text and present it to you just as I have. That this is what we're to look out for. But I think there's more to be had. Consider the term the apostle uses here, springs. Now I'll say I've never viewed this particular portion of Scripture the way that I see it now. The term is used to denote a place that should contain sustenance needed for man. He says they are springs without water. A spring is not yet another body of water, not yet another body of stagnant water like a pond or a puddle. It is not even likened unto a lake that like the pond too may become dry. The spring is a place where the source can be found flowing. Only the false teacher is a spring who has no flow. He has no bounty, no life to offer. The spring is actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. A great deception. An eternal letdown, if you will. A mighty disappointment in the day of the great judgment. I believe in the infinite wisdom of God. And in that infinite wisdom, I believe that he would cause the apostle to call even the false teachers springs. Think about that. Why would he call them springs? You might say, why? Well, what's important about that? Because really what we need to know is they're without water. It's not so. There's a, a deeper look into this passage, and I'm pleased that the Lord would reveal it to me. It's important because the term describes the created purpose of every man. Every man is called to be a spring. Some are without water. Every man called to be a spring. For you and I, the greatest truth of Second Peter chapter 2 is to be understood in the light of the term springs. Man was created to be a spring, a spring that flows forth with the living water which is Christ. Christ in and Christ out. That's what we're called to be. Christ in and Christ out. Jesus Christ through and through. That's the spring we're called to be. 
These false teachers, they're springs too. But they don't work. They have no life. They have no sustenance. We're to be a spring with that living water, covered by His blood and filled with His Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that we're called to be springs, springs with water. Any other spring is a deceptive spring. The water is not only to nourish the spiritual man, but it is the spring that yields its fruit to wash away that which is unprofitable. Like what we see in Ephesians 5.26. So we must ask ourselves, does my spring yield its fruit? Am I spiritually dry and bankrupt? Are we washing with the water of the word? Do we have any water to wash with? The answer lies in one place. With one man who is both God and man. It lies in the heavenly places on the right hand of the throne of God. And it lies with Jesus himself. He promised in John 7. 37 through 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is now glorified. The spirit is given. We're to be wells springing forth with life that comes from the life giver himself, Jesus Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Not I who is, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, if you're a spring, you're not a spring that is James Ledbetter or Ken Roberts or Charlie Owen. You're a spring that is Jesus Christ. Oh, how devastating it would be to be a dry spring, a spring with no water. You were designed to be a spring, yet you're not. We as mankind are called to be springs. But we mustn't be dry. For without the great Savior Jesus Christ, we're as dry as bones, dry as dust. But with Him, we're true spiritual beings that produce not minor streams or creeks, but powerful rivers of eternal living water. That's the truth of Christ in regenerate man. The simplest way to put this is what I said earlier, Jesus in, Jesus out. In your walk, will you be with Christ? Do you strive in His righteousness? Or do you strive for your own? That's what the text is really saying. Be careful of those who strive for their own, these false teachers, springs without water. And if we say that we walk with Christ, are we like Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of the faith of others? <clears throat> if we're a true spring, it shows because we're feeding others. We have an abundance of living water. We have an abundance of Christ. We can't help but sing and give praises to God. The other contrast is, are we simply watering seeds of discord and wickedness 
as they would uh, sow wild oats. May we today remind ourselves that if we do not belong to Christ, we are as these false teachers, damned to unimaginable darkness, doom and torment. Likewise, if we find ourselves hidden with God in Christ, then we are those who belong to Him. And unlike the false teachers who are proclaiming and preaching the flesh, we are proclaiming and preaching Christ and we have a fountain that is far superior. That true fountain is Jesus Christ. Like the woman at the well in John 4, if we turn any other way than towards the cross, we will again thirst. But whoever drinks of the water that he alone will give, he will never again thirst. Truly, we as springs will become a well of water unto eternal life. In Him alone. Are you a spring without water? Or are you a spring fed by the eternal fountain whose everlasting flow is sealed by the blood of the Lamb? The problem is that we as truly regenerate man are springs just as the false teachers of spring. But sometimes our feeding upon Christ, our separation from that great, wonderful fountain, Emmanuel, is so great that we only trickle. That we only have a small puddle. So this morning I submit to you that we should look at ourselves and ask, what kind of spring are we? Every man both regenerate and unregenerate, is called by God and created by God to enjoy Him and worship Him forever. And if you're not worshiping God, you're a spring without water. It's a dangerous place to be. So necessary is it to feed upon the Word of God, which is Christ, and to drink from that everlasting fountain, which is the living water which is the eternal well springing forth into eternal life. Let's go before the Lord. God, as we begin to fellowship together soon after, Lord, I pray that we reflect as we eat a meal and as we drink from these cups, Lord. That we're reminded these things are so temporal. They truly do not quench our thirst or our hunger, God, because we will come again. There's a great truth also in that, God. That as we hunger and thirst in these physical bodies for this physical food and drink, Lord, we leave and come back and eat again, and we leave and come back and eat again. But God, we praise you, for you are the eternal water. You are the living water. You are the eternal food. You are the bread of life. And Lord, when we come to your table, because of your great mercy and kindness, 
and your irresistible grace. We come and cannot leave, God. Sometimes we don't feed. But God, we praise you that you would keep us at your table. God, this day we ask that you would remove sin far from us. Lord, that you would shower your forgiveness upon us. Lord, we're sinful man. There is no beauty in wickedness, but there's beauty that shines through sin, and it's your grace, God. Make us a gracious people as you've been gracious, or make us forgiving as you've been forgiving. Lord, make us thirst only for your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.